HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. With more than 30 weekly podcasts, HRN has something for every food lover. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by 818 Tequila. Handcrafted, expert approved, with over 20 international blind tasting awards. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York, 40% alcohol by volume. Drink responsibly. Welcome to Pizza Quest. I'm Peter Reinhardt, a man on a never-ending search for the perfect pizza. This show is the audio version of the Pizza Talk YouTube series, where I engage in interesting conversations with some of the country's greatest pizza makers and other artisans. Thanks for joining me on this quest. Welcome to Pizza Quest. I'm Peter Reinhardt, and uh, I'm here with Chef Jihei Kim of Miss Kim's Restaurant in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Uh, we're going to take a little bit of veering today from pizza. Uh, we've been exploring in, in this season a lot of non-pizza themes because the the bigger theme for Pizza Quest, as many of you know, have been with us from the beginning, is, is that it's not always about the pizza, it's about the quest. And the reason that I wanted to, you know, spend some time with uh, Jihei is that she is doing something really extraordinary in Ann Arbor. Uh, it's all around her own Korean heritage and her Korean food, but she didn't start out as a Korean chef or a culinarian or anything. So she's had her own amazing journey, and that's what I want to hear about. So welcome, Jihei, and thank you for being part of uh, our show today. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. So just I'll just do a quick setup, and then I'm going to let you go, because I want to, I'd love for you to just tell us your, your journey. Um uh, you uh, grew up in a, uh, well, I think you were born in Korea, but then moved in, uh, to the, to Canada first, and then uh, eventually were raised in, if I'm not mistaken, like New Jersey. Am I right about that? <laughs> no, straight to the United States. Yeah, New okay, Jersey. So, okay. yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. But, okay, but you were in, in Jersey, and then uh, ultimately ended up at the University of Michigan. And, I did. And you did, and you studied some things that were not related to food whatsoever, uh, but so tell us, tell us a little bit about sort of that early part and how you ended up at Michigan and how being at Michigan uh, at, at UM sort of then led to a couple twists and turns in your own in your own interesting career development. Sure. Um, yeah. Like you said, I was born and raised in Korea. Um, 
I came to United States uh, to Garden State, New Jersey, when I was 13. And then I ended up in Michigan because I went to University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. I studied political science and economics, which I would wager has a lot to do with the restaurant industry indirectly. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you're, well, you're connecting those dots in your own career, which as we'll get into a little bit later. But yes, there's no no question they're intricately, uh, you know, enmeshed. Yeah. And then um, I actually didn't stay in Ann Arbor after I graduated. I um, I moved back to New Jersey. I had a full career in hospital administration, working with the patients, doctors, boards, insurance companies. Um, did that for a while. I ended up um, moving back to Ann Arbor because when I was in Ann Arbor, I, I had uh, met a boy and then I had come back for him. Uh, so, there's, always a, there's always a guy in these stories somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> you got to follow your heart. You got to follow yeah, your exactly. heart. Yeah. 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 Um, and then uh, once I uh, came to Michigan, um, that's when I sort of like took the opportunity to like you know, again, the theme is follow my heart. So to try something different. And then that's how I ended up in a food industry in general. And then like 10 years after I have my own restaurant. And But you didn't, you know, the, use the, the sort of the current customary route, which is a lot of people go through culinary school or, or, you know, apprenticed in for years in restaurants somewhere else. Um, you pretty much, I call, I, I, when I sort of look at your story, I, I view you as an intuitive cook, an intuitive chef in that you figured it out. You figured a lot of these things out on your own. Of course, you, you had, I'm sure some nurturing, some culinary nurturing at home, uh, with, with family recipes and heritage recipes and things like that. But, but you, you, I think if I, if I'm not mistaken, you, you ended up going to work at Zingerman's, which is an iconic you know, food emporium in Ann Arbor. I put it up there with, with, I don't know, Trader Joe's and, and, uh, uh, you know, some of the other iconic brands. Uh, um, yeah. Buy right in San Francisco comes to mind. Right. Yeah. Uh, Zabar is in New York city. You know, yeah. I mean, people equate Zingerman's with, with brands like that because it, because they stand for something and Zingerman's uh, as you know is always since since it's come into existence and the last time I was in Ann Arbor and I was a young man there was no Zingerman's so but it seems like it's been there forever and and I guess it's probably been there 30 40 years but that tells you how long it's been since I've been in Ann Arbor but but the thing is that Zingerman stands for quality ingredients you know sourcing and finding really uh, you know amazing products that nobody else is finding, uh, whether you get it through their mail order or you go to the mother house and shop, you ended up working there, right? And so yeah. did you get some of your for formative training just working the counter at Zingerman's? Yeah, yeah. I mean, like I first want to go back go back a step and say that yeah. um, there was no family heritage recipes that handed out to me really? uh, because yeah. Uh, what I did get is a really good palate because my mom is an amazing cook and she's the best cook in the family, but she didn't want to really teach me. She wanted me to have an office job. She didn't want to have, she didn't want me to have a, yeah, she didn't want me to have a, um, uh, a job where I'm going to be on my feet all day and more than office job. She wanted me to get married. And yeah. then she was she was very confident that once I get married, I'll somehow magically figure out the the cooking part. 
So she didn't bother teaching me, but I had a lot of practice eating. So, which is a good place to start. Yeah. So that, that's a good baseline for me. And then once I joined Singerman's, I think you're absolutely right about uh, their sourcing. And, you know, we talk a lot about farm to table and sourcing locally, but I think, um, uh, my education at Singerman's is a, a bit different because you think about artisans as well as the land and uh, the quality of the products that come from those artisans. So you can have, it's if you know about balsamic vinegar, this is sort of oxymoron, but you can you can have locally made balsamic vinegar that's okay. Uh-huh. Uh, a true, real, high quality, amazing balsamic vinegar is made by families in Modena yeah. from mothers that's been handed down generations. And then they do things in the way that they've learned from their family and then perhaps making like intentional updates to it that does not interfere that much with the tradition Mm-hmm. So like working with Zingerman sort of gave me appreciation for that kind of work, that kind of like um, long range work, right? So it's not an instant gratification kind of work. It's a really dedication to what they do. Um, and it also gave me a good education on uh, developing professional palate. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So a, a good example would be that like I did not grow up eating cereal. So when somebody's really excited about cereal flavor, it just kind of goes over my head. Uh-huh. But if I have a really good one, uh, good cereal milk or soft serve or good peanut butter, even though I didn't grow up with it, I can recognize it because the 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 education on artisanal products, processes, and then uh, really being able to identify a well-made product came from uh, working with Singerman's and my experience there. It's interesting because, you know, a lot of people who are in the, you know, sort of become foodies in the last few years, they take a lot of this information for granted. They feel like, oh yeah, it's obvious. It's, you know, we should all know this. But when Zingerman started, it took companies like Zingerman's to bring that kind of knowledge to the American public, you know, back in 30 years ago, very few people thought about artisanal foods. They thought about or sourcing or, you know, what is true balsamic vinegar? I mean, we had to learn all of that. Now that's all now becoming part of our, our gastronomical, you know, growth curve here in, in this country, but we didn't grow up with that kind of growth curve. Uh, maybe right. in your generation a little bit more because you, but you came into it through companies and like some of the other ones we mentioned who were part of bringing that knowledge and awareness. And then there's the food channels and all sorts of other media that, that has educated this country. You don't have to go to culinary school to learn these things. You can just turn on, you know, one of the food channels and, and get a crash course in, in all this now, but it's, it's really, you know, a gift to, to this current generation that that knowledge is so readily available. And, and you had to, you know, sort of absorb it, but you were lucky enough to absorb it at, at, you know, at the counter at a place like Zingerman's where you you could do tastings and things like that. Yeah, I, I think the current currently it's almost like information overload. So it's a blessing that there's so much information readily available. But then if you don't know exactly what you're looking for or you, you yeah. are not sure what the standards are where to start, then that could be really challenging. Um, but it, it, yeah, yeah, Zingerman's provides some sort of guideline for that. You know, that, that, as you said that, it made me think that, you know, there was a, we were, we went through a phase of discovery 
about food. There's all these aha moments like, wow, I didn't know something could taste that good or that there was a product, a, a, a cereal that could blow my mind and all that kind of stuff. And everything was new and exciting. And, and now it's not so new and exciting. And you always have to, and, and yet people are always hungry for what's next. What's the next thing? What's the next big thing? Um, you know, and, and, and you start doing it when you say information overload, it's like, is there, are there new frontiers still left to discover? And, uh, you know, I wonder, you know, if, uh, your restaurant, Miss Kim, is essentially, a, well, it grew out of what a food cart that you had for a while where you were doing street food. Uh, you know, you had phases that you went through to bring yourself to the point where you could open your own restaurant. What do you find today? Because now Miss Kim is, you know, it's on the James Beard radar. It's becoming nationally known. It's becoming, you know, significant. It started, it stands for something. And then I want to talk a little bit about what Miss Kim does stand for, uh, because what it stands for is important to answer this question about like what's left, what what can continue to get us excited about about food as a sort of a discovery process. We say Pizza Quest is a journey of self discovery through pizza, but really it's a journey of self discovery, no matter what your metaphor you know for the journey is. In your sense, it can it probably you could say it's a journey of self discovery through Korean food, but it's really more than that. Where, where do you see sort of the, the excitement that you're bringing to people when they encounter your food? Well, I think, um, I think there's still so much to be discovered. And uh, my uh, way of sort of my direction has been going like narrow and deeper. Like you mm. dig deeper and deeper and dip deeper. And like um, more I look into Korean food that I realize I know nothing. <laughs> like there's still so much, so much to find. Yeah. And you know, just like you said, the motivation behind it is very much uh, self-discovery, right? Um, because I uh, am in Michigan, away from a uh, large Korean American community, away from my mother's cooking. Mm-hmm. It was sort of, it did start out sort of like a way of looking for myself here and looking for my community here. And then it had evolved into something a little bigger, um, sort of uh, um, being able to find my identity in America as an immigrant. And and in order for me to do that, how do I do that? I need to know the story. Like, what is my story? And how does that connect to where I am? And how does that connect to the story of my... uh, my ancestors and, and generations. And I, it sounds really sort of like heavy, but it's really not. It's a lot of fun. Like if I go to farmer's market and I talk to the farmers who's been here for hundred years, whose family has been coming to the farmer's market for hundred years, then I can sort of like, you know, talk to them and see, like start imagining like if my grandma was here and was talking to Carlene, the farmer, what would she, what would she do? Would she barter? Mm-hmm. Um, would she, was she like, you know, pick Carlene's brain on how she cooks things and then like get ideas on how to buy Carlene's vegetables and then cook it at home. And so for me, it came down to really um, just being able to tell the story and then finding myself in it. And I think, yeah. uh, you know, one of my favorite writers, uh, Roger Ebert, the the great um, uh, movie the reviewer, yeah, yeah, film critic. And he has said that the more specific um, uh, uh, the story goes, 
the more universal it becomes. So I sort of feel that the more I dig deeper into this narrow path and look at my my story, my ancestor's story, immigrant story, it's a Michigan story. I, I just feel that it's it becomes more universal. And I, I think that's why I'm able to sort of like make more connections. You know, that makes so much sense because you know, you your journey of self-discovery is unique to you and your, you know, your circumstances and your past and history, but everybody is engaged in a, and that's the premise of Pizza Quest really is everybody is is on a journey of self-discovery through their own unique specifics. But but that's the part that's universal is that everybody is on their own quest. And, yes, you, and absolutely. the metaphors that guide your quest are, you know, whether it's the, the like like where where pizza is mine, maybe kimchi becomes the metaphor for you. You know, but but it's 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 a journey that converges for all of us somewhere along the line. And I think you're you're right, that insight of it being the deeper you go the more the more we start to merge with this this sort of universal I, we call them our kindred spirits the other people that are on the same journey with us so what have you discovered about yourself in your journey <laughs> yeah um, knowing that it's a journey in process it's a work in process you know and i think that's good because that means you're still deeply engaged in it the fire is still burning yeah, what do you what do you, what are you finding well, I've already said that um, I discovered that I don't know much and yeah. there's just so much more to learn. Yeah. Yeah. And I've also discovered that I love I love the process uh, of that discovery. Um, I am not a Buddhist at all, but there is a there is this uh, a story where like, you know, you are burdened by the world and you have a question that you need answer to, but you cannot figure it out. You go to the temple and you talk to the monk and the monk says, if you take a thousand vows, you'll figure it out. Mm. So then you start taking thousand vows and thousand vows and thousand vows. And then um, the story goes like, while people do that, going through that process of taking thousand vows, most people, almost everybody sort of figures out their own answer. Mm. And, you know, cooking or running a business or anything I do, um, on the path to self-discovery is sort of like that. Maybe the end goal is not the discovery itself, but when you're in there every day making buns or making kimchi, and then like, you know, you try to make each step better just little by little every day. And by by doing that, doing that action, I, I, I feel that that's where the discovery lies. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And that uh, I, I think that's interesting that, that the 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 master the the Buddhist master doesn't have to have the answers for you. He just has a, he he just provides a way for you to get your own answers. Yeah, yeah. So so you've been and and again we all go through our ten thousand or twenty thousand hours of doing something over and over again until we have these breakthrough moments or insights or become really good and masterful at them. Uh, what is it like? What are what are the things that you do then in order to well, in order to have brought your restaurant into into manifestation into being? You know, what are the things that you have to do both each day and building up to it to make mm-hmm. it happen? Well, I think um, you have to have a good balance of your daily challenges, challenges and you know, trials and tribulations, and then, you know, keeping an eye on the big picture. So some of the big picture stuff that I do, I really love is 
Um, I'm lucky enough to still really uh, am fluent in Korean and read Korean. So, and, and Korea still has huge interest in historical cooking. So it was never my plan to go to culinary school. By the time I was uh, done with University of Michigan, I, I like, didn't have the time or the money right. to go to another college. <laughs> and uh, I wasn't going to go to uh, a culinary school in Korea. And, and the culinary school here wasn't going to provide what I wanted, the education I wanted, because I wanted the Korean food education. So I started digging deeper into you know, the world of Amazon so mm-hmm. to speak. And then I, yeah. I started ordering books from Korea and then started reading because I thought I knew like I wanted to put my own spin on dishes that I grew uh-huh. up loving. Yeah. Um, but if I were going to do that, I wanted to do it with integrity and respect. And in order for me to do that, then I wanted to understand the story of the dish. Like it must have changed throughout the centuries and the years. And I wanted to know how it has changed and understanding that story. And then also the story of people who made those dishes and enjoyed those those dishes made me feel like if I at least knew that, then I I feel like I've earned a little bit of room to put a little like spin on that on my own. So like a lot of that work is thinking big picture on Korean food and Korean American food. Um, that's not necessarily fusion. Um, and then, um, so that's the bigger picture work. And I also think about like my identity as a female leader and an uh, uh, immigrant woman and how that experience reflects into the policies of the uh, restaurant and the company that I run. So th- that's the bigger picture. Yeah. Um, you, daily- you, have political, you have that political science background and you, and you, and economics. And so, you know, you, 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 that's all weaved into your work. Yeah, I mean, that's informed by my life experience, right? Because if you are, uh, if your life is directly impacted and you feel it every day because you're on a student visa or you're out of status, then you are going to be aware more of like, you know, legal implications on somebody. Or um, if you struggle with money, then you're going to be more aware of money. Yeah. So like for me, yeah, that comes into play in uh, every decision I try to make for the restaurant. And then on daily basis, um, we have a very small kitchen. We have a very uh, small crew and uh, staff shortages a lot. And I try to uh, make sure the working environment is good and people are paid living wage and benefits. Mm-hmm. Um, that's good for them. And it makes me sound really good. But also if you don't do that, you don't get to keep people. If you don't have people, you don't have a restaurant. So it's also very yeah. driven by uh, self-interest as well. Well, yeah. And that's a big challenge, especially today. Uh, but before we go to break, um, you know, and, uh, and when we come back from break, I want to talk more about Miss Kim and, and the food you're serving there. Uh, but I, I did want before we break, I just wanted to ask you, I know that all the self-study, the, the books that you read, both in the in the source languages and everything else. Uh, are there any books that you can recommend to you know our viewers and listeners uh, that are e- written in English even uh, that would help them become more steeped in in traditional Korean cuisine. And then when we come back, we'll talk about how how traditional cuisine uh, sort of reflects itself with the twists and turns that you've put on it to make it personally your cuisine. Okay, that sounds great. But any, but just so before break, oh. uh, any, any books you want to throw out there for people to think about that were helpful to you? Yeah, yeah, let's see. Um, 
the Korean cookbooks are kind of tough because a lot of Korean cookbooks in English um, until very recently has been like a compendium of these are a whole bunch of Korean dishes you can try at home. Yeah. And um, so I would recommend one book and that book is, um, it's called, uh, uh, I think it's, it's called Beauty of 100 Korean Dishes mm. uh, or something like that. It's readily available on Amazon and, and it doesn't share that many stories, but it does have the most commonly uh, beloved Korean dishes. What's good about the cookbook is that it is written by a woman whose job is to sort of standardize and document Korean food. So all the measurements are available in volume as well as weight. And they're often step-by-step pictures. So if you're thinking about cooking Korean food at home and approaching it, and you want sort of like a, a very straightforward, traditional Orthodox recipe, that's a good place to go. The translation is a little wonky, but because it's uh, accompanied with the step-by-step pictures, it's a little easier to follow. So I, I think that one is really good. And then another one that I recommend is, uh, uh, it's actually recently come out, Korean American by Eric Kim. Uh, um, uh. Yeah, I think that's a super interesting cookbook because um, it's sort of like validating the experience of Korean Americans and what we eat at home, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to there's a lot of stories of like, if I go to an Asian restaurant and it's not full of people who don't speak English and everything's under $9, then it's not authentic. So it takes sort of this like a uh, terror of authenticity that's tied to cheaper price away from it uh-huh. and and sort of uh it validates the experiences of korean american people here and how delicious the food that we make here can be that um yeah so yeah. i think those two books i'd recommend well i you know i i love korean cuisine and uh, i remember getting a tour of, of koreatown out just outside of washington dc and uh, I, I can't even remember the name of the town. I just think of it as Koreatown, you know, and we got to go to a few, you know, terrific restaurants. And, and again, I don't know if what we were eating then was would be considered Americanized versions of Korean classics or if they were the Korean classics themselves. But uh, the food was, you know, the, the flavors were just so vibrant and alive. And and of course, I don't know, technically alive. I mean, all the 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 living you know the 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 fermentation and the and the kimchi and everything that was happening there was just um, it was exciting it was invigorating to eat food like that and so you know where I live in Charlotte we have only a couple of Korean restaurants um, and probably nothing of the caliber that you know I was getting up there or what you're doing where you are so we want to explore that when we come back from the okay. break. Uh, we're with um, with Jihae Kim, who, who is the uh, the founder, creator, the chef at, at uh, Miss Kim in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Uh, and uh, we'll talk a little bit maybe when we come back about, uh, you know, where you see all of this going in the future. And if you have any plans to do any writing of your own and kind of get this all down, you know, in, in books to, for the next generation. Okay? okay. So we'll be back in just a second. Thanks for joining us on Pizza Talk. And we'll be back in part two with Jihae. Stick around for more Pizza Quest after a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by 818 Tequila. 818 creates their tequila using traditional methods at a family-owned and operated distillery in Jalisco, Mexico. 818 is created from fully matured blue agave from the Los Altos and Valles regions of tequila. It is then slow cooked for over 30 hours 
extracted using traditional Tahona wheels, distilled twice in copper pot stills, and aged in American and French oak barrels. This process creates the best tasting, highest quality tequila possible. Their tequilas have received over 20 blind tasting awards. They strive for excellence in every sip. 818's Blanco is sweet and smooth, with undertones of tropical and citrus fruits. Their reposado is soft and balanced with notes of caramel and vanilla. Their añejo is elegant and velvety, with crisp herbal notes and a warm vanilla finish. Visit drink818.com to learn more about their tequila and find it near you. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York, 40% alcohol by volume. Drink responsibly. Welcome back to Pizza Quest, and I'm I'm with uh, uh, G H Kim. I'm saying it right, G H, right? You spell H Y E, but G H Kim uh, of Miss Kim in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Uh, tell me a little bit about Miss Kim. I mean, what is? I know that it's. We've talked about how you kind of made it your own. Uh, the, the the twists, but I was reading some of the the menu items, and of course, got me very excited. Um, when you got a yeah a Buddhist silken tofu soup, so there's a little bit of a shout out to to that Buddhist tradition. Even though you yourself are not, a, well, you wouldn't consider yourself a practicing Buddhist per se, but you, it seems like you want to honor those traditions, you know, at the restaurant. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. I uh, so at Miss Kim, uh, the food that we do, um, I, I say that it's inspired by our ancestors and our farmers. So it's very much rooted in like Korean culinary tradition and history, but it's also married uh, with the Michigan farmers and produce. And a lot of it comes a lot uh, from like my studies into Korean food. So because I don't, I don't have a culinary degree at all. And I don't have, uh, I, I really like didn't have any classical training. I looked into books a lot and I've mentioned that I, I thought I knew Korean food, but then the more I look into it, the less I feel that I know. And there is just so much to dig into. What I uh, discovered was the diversity of Korean food. It's just, there's just so many angles that you can go at it. And it's just mm, unbelievable. Yeah. So like Buddhist cuisine, would be another one. And I found it really fascinating um, because um, Buddhist cuisine, like, you know, it's, it's vegan, but it's a lot more than that. It's, uh, it's a, a philosophy in uh, sustainability because the waste is uh, really not allowed. And it's a philosophy in local food. Uh, everything needs to come from certain radius, either foraged or donated or farmed from the temple. So it's very local. And because uh, it's local, it's also very seasonal. You're not supposed to use five, this exciting like aromatics. So you're not supposed to use garlic or mm. chives or onions or those allium families you're not allowed to use because it's considered like too passion inducing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so then that, that uh, sort of like creates a, a section of Korean food 
like you know most people know Korean food as like a, a spicy and and intense flavors, but then here is this cuisine yeah. that's uh, milder and disciplined and really focused on ingredients. So that's why the Buddhist cuisine was also very interesting. And Buddhist cuisine uses a lot of like a lot more spices than um, current Korean cooking. Um, for example, they use sancho peppers and session peppercorns, which is not widely as widely used in a regular, uh, uh, like everyday Korean cooking. Uh-huh. So, so I get some inspiration from that. I get inspirations from regional Korean cooking. So, like let's take bibimbap, which is like the one of the most popular and well-known, uh, beloved Korean dishes. Yeah, that, that looks that's sort of the one dish that almost everybody. Yeah, that's reference that's the yeah. that's the beginner dish, right? That's a that's a yeah. easy but to just one, food. There's not not just one version of of uh, bibimbap, right? It's there's I think on your menu you celebrate at least three different versions, right? Yeah, I, it's um, you know, Korea is a, a not a big country. It's I think it's uh, smaller than many many uh, United States states. Definitely smaller than Texas. Um, but yeah. it's uh, geographically varied. So it's peninsula, it's like 70% mountainous. So the bibimbap you get in a mountainous area yeah. may have mushrooms and dried greens and, and stuff like that. The, uh, and bibimbap you get from seaside town will have seaweed and raw fish or fish roe or even cooked fish in it or clams. So you, even with one dish, you get this beautiful, um, variety and uh, different versions of it. And I, I wanted to showcase that. So that's where some of the other inspirations come from. So every time I look into uh, Korean yeah. food, like, you know, there's so much to draw from. from. For our listeners who are not that familiar with Korean cuisine, maybe our pizza listeners who are just so focused on the world of pizza <laughs> that they haven't had a lot of exposure to the Korean, you know, stuff. What exactly is bibimbap? And um, what makes it sort of that that iconic dish with a lot of flexibility? <laughs> well, in that sense, bibimbap sort of kind of pizza. Uh, <laughs> pizza um, of, so, of Korea. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so bibimbap is, generally speaking, it's a bowl mm-hmm. of grains on the bottom mm-hmm. and variety of toppings on top. And uh, it has a, a red sauce that comes on the side. And uh, you can throw the red sauce and mix everything and eat it together in uh, with all the ingredients in harmony. So that's that's bibimbap. It's not set of necessarily set of ingredients. Uh, most typical, well-known bibimbap is modeled after Chonju bibimbap, which comes from the southern uh, west side of the country, uh-huh. and that has uh, white rice and various different vegetables, probably anywhere between three to five. And then some beef, either raw or a cooked beef um, that's chopped so it like mixes well, not a huge mm-hmm. chunks. And mm-hmm. then fried egg on top. And then it it's served with the kuchjang on the side. So you this is usually the uh, the typical uh, bibimbap you see, uh, especially in the United States. But so there really is many this, different kinds. This proliferation of bowl cuisine throughout the United States uh, is really just a play off of bibimbap then. Right. I mean, it's sort That's, of like draw its 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 connection to that to that style. I would I would definitely claim that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <right. Like> 
quick about it. Yeah. yeah, if you had a cyborg, that's Korean. I'm just gonna claim that. Yeah. That's it, right? Yeah, and and it's become and obviously the, one of the reasons why that dish is so popular is because it works as a flavor concept. It delivers tremendous amount of flavor with diverse ingredients, and I think and that texture. that's texture. Yeah, every yeah, bite. Texture, yeah. yeah, yeah. So it, so I, and 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 a lot of times when I write about food, you know, I'm always talking about you know, whether it works or doesn't, does it deliver flavor or doesn't it deliver flavor? And, and that's the key to the whole game. And, and bowls, if they're, if they're uh, constructed correctly with the right balance of flavors are a wonderful flavor delivery system. Yeah. And, and I, I would say also like very balanced in like oftentimes, okay. So when you're building bibimbap, um, you, you're looking for balance and harmony so uh, in color and texture and flavor, but also in like nutrition. So it's mm-hmm. not a super heavy dish, yet it has the protein, the carbs and the vegetables and all the stuff in there. Um, so yeah, yeah, that's totally clear. Yeah. Uh, so um, so when you do your beef and bobs at, at uh, you know, at, at Miss Kim, what are you, obviously I think you said you're drawing not only on the the sort of the traditional idea but also your relationship with the farmers so you're bringing in this other thing that's become very popular in this country which is it, it took us forever to catch up to the other countries in in understanding that we must work with our farmers and that the, the cuisines as much a, a result of what's being grown around us as it is about the spices and the the concept that you know was in its heritage yeah, I'm, it, I I think um, most, like, you know, I, I always say Korean food is uh, regional. Korean food needs to be regional. It needs to be really, like, pay homage to where it's actually being cooked. And then it needs to be seasonal. Um, but that's not unique to Korean food. That's unique to most traditional food. And I would say that was probably the case for the United States. Us not doing the... Uh, you know, not losing connection with the local farmers is a, yeah. a very recent thing. It's a 20th century thing. And I am hoping that we are coming back from that. And uh, I mean, it makes uh, uh, it makes sense in terms of flavor because vegetables in season taste vastly better than the vegetables that you just get from a grocery store out of season. The color, it's be- more beautiful, color is more vibrant. Um, it's cheaper in season if you buy from the farmers. And um, so it makes an economic sense. So when, when we do bibimbap at Miss Kim, we sort of try to break the mold of the most popular well-known version of bibimbap, which is uh-huh. the one that I described, yeah. but, but sort of go by the different set of rules. So like um, the set of rules we have is like, does it have five colors? Um, mm-hmm. um, so those colors are, it's called obangsek. It's five colors of the universe. So it's a uh, uh, red, uh, red, yellow, white, green, and black, or like green or blue and black, right? Yeah. So your bowl yeah. should have lots of colors. Your bowl should have uh, locally sourced stuff. If I am making a Buddhist version, then I would go one step further and make sure that there's no uh, allium put into that. Would there also be no meat? Would the Buddhist version be meatless? 
Exactly. It will be meatless sure. and then we'll also have no egg. But then uh, you're okay. extracting most flavor out of uh, what's in that bowl because we use multigrain, which mm -hmm. has more flavor, uh, maybe wild rice from the Midwestern region um, and local vegetables and uh, microgreens to make that happen. So we sort of like use ingredients more interchangeably. But we play by our own own rules based on <laughs> what I like to go away from studies into Korean food. But also, you're a restaurant, and so you have to give the customers what they want and desire. What which which versions do you find that and and which dishes that you're making there aside from the beef above are the are the dishes that your customers just crave and want more of? Oh, so this is a fun story. So uh, rice cakes. Um, is one of the most popular dishes that we have. And uh, when we opened the restaurant uh, five and a half years or so, before that, I was doing pop-up dinners at a friend's bar, like testing uh -huh. out some of these dishes. And all the Korean friends that I have are like, yeah. oh, American people don't like rice cakes. They don't like the texture. They're, they don't like the sort of like soft, chewy thing. Like no, nobody's going to buy that dish. And I had a feeling that if it was tasty enough, yeah. people will buy it. And it has since become the most popular dish on the menu. Am I and saying this right? Is this the one that says, uh, is it hiokbaki? Am I saying that correctly? Close. Tteokbokki. Uh, say it again. Tteokbokki. So boki. Yeah, tteokbokki. And I, I think it's, yeah. And then our step likes to call it boki because it's easier. Yeah, it's definitely easier. <laughs> Yeah, but, but, it, but, but it was described as being a, a royale style. Is what makes it a royale style? Oh yeah. So like most uh, the the most quintessential version is the ones that you can easily find on the streets of Korea. Um, that's the basically rice cakes are like a cooked rice that's a uh, uh, pounded and uh, like um, turned into like a stick shape, oftentimes yeah. like round yeah. baton shape. Um, and then you sort of cook that down with some uh, gochujang chili paste and some uh, umami rich stock. And, and then you can sell that on the street. And it's really cheap and really available and people love it. It's kind of like soul food. Is it crispy on the outside and soft and chewy on the inside or is it not? Crispy? It is not, not the street version. It's just soft all around. If anything, like it, it reminds people of gnocchi. So if ah, you, yeah, yeah, we've yeah. had like Italian gnocchi, that would be the texture. Um, and I wanted to put this on the menu, but I wanted it to be a little different. And so I thought the texture needed to improve because the original, original, like if you look at the history of that dish, it didn't always have gochujang in it. Uh, and it didn't always, it wasn't always a braised dish where it sits in a, a sort of sauce for a long time. It was a saute dish that was soy sauce based with lots of different ingredients that had a lot more vegetables in there. So I created the version that's inspired by the streets, uh, streets uh, version, uh -huh. street food. And uh, because um, I actually like the even cheaper version of that dish where it's just skewered rice cake that's deep fried. So it's crispy on the outside and, and soft and chewy inside. I think, and that's what, I think Americans really go for that concept of the crisp and crisp and chewy both. Oh yeah. I think Koreans as well. Okay, so yeah. Yeah, That's so, universal. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Crispy on the outside, moist and salt, like soft yeah. on the inside. Yeah, like something fried about chicken. that combo yeah. is just yeah. like intoxicating. Absolutely. So I created a version that has a lot more uh, textural interest to it. 
um, it was quickly sauteed rather than braised for a long time. Uh, and then uh, because uh, me looking into that dish um, uh, yielded knowledge into this other dish that's uh, been, uh, you know, documented from 18th century. It's uh, known as a palace cooking. It wasn't like street cooking at all. I mean, that dish is a, such an interesting story where it comes from like, soy sauce based pan fried dish with lots of expensive ingredients that the kings and queens loved in the palace down to after Korean War, it's a, a, a braised dish in a completely different sauce with completely different texture and then not a lot of vegetables and not a lot of meat in it. Um, and it's one of the cheapest you can find in Korea. So I wanted to show sort of like the, the progression of that dish by presenting a, like a couple of different versions of it. Cool. Well, and uh, let me say, I think uh, I noticed another dish that uh, caught my attention is this fried caramel broccolini with a with an anchovy caramel. Uh, you, you, what do you caramelize anchovies to make this dish work? Uh, no, um, actually, caramelized anchovy is one of my favorite uh, side dishes of Korean food. So Korean table is uh, consisted of like you know rice, which is a starch. Maybe it has a soup. Maybe it has some meat, but it has tiny little side dishes called banchan uh, and yeah uh, and that's that really rounds out the dishes and there's incredible variety for that and and one of my favorite is the caramelized anchovies uh, for this dish though we sort of uh, make a sweeter reduced down fish sauce based sauce so it's anchovy based fish sauce that's uh, cooked with uh, dried chilies, garlic, ginger, and, and and some sugar, and then you reduce it down so it's a little more syrupy. And then we put that on uh, a deep fried broccolini and mm -hmm. then have some uh, sort of nuts and the herbs in it. If I had my preferences, I would use peanuts, but peanuts are a pretty severe allergen, so we use cashews oh, yeah, yeah. instead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But this is like an umami bomb. It sounds like yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. If you're drinking beer, this would be really good with it. <laughs> and, well, you know, um, well, you just answered a question for me when you uh, that uh, we have a, a local chain, uh, a Korean fried chicken chain called Banchan here. But so Banchan refers to all the side dishes that go around the dishes. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, it's sort of a catch-all phrase, mm. and the closest. Uh, Closest translation would be sides, but banchan is so much more than just the side of pickle or side of potato salad. Uh, one of the challenges that I had uh, coming from sort of like a, a, a eater of Korean food, uh, that's especially homemade Korean food to like a professional Korean American chef is being able to translate what I grew up with onto a table where people can understand. And banchan is a tough thing to translate because it yeah. takes so much energy, so much labor, and oftentimes it's considered like a throwaway dish. Mm -hmm. um, and one, one thing that banchan does for Korean table, uh, besides making it really bountiful and welcoming, is that it gives a lot of autonomy uh, to the diner. Uh, banchan often almost always has kimchi or some sort of pickled vegetables. Mm. It has different textures and flavors on it. So when you are eating at a, a more, more typical Korean restaurant, then you get your entree, but you also get a whole bunch of sides and then you can create your own bite yeah. that has the acidity and the texture based on how you like it. Um, but if you're running a, a, a restaurant and 
and you have audience who may not be interested in having that many things on the on the table and pay for it mm-hmm. or you have an audience who just wants to have a plate and then uh, eat that then uh, it is my job as a chef to make sure that that plate has all the elements that banchan would normally provide so that's mm-hmm. the crunch that's the acidity yeah. that may be a kick of spice or a palate cleansing pickle so um, one of the things that i think about a lot is how to translate it, that experience into, into like a one plate of food that you can have Interesting, because I could see myself like ordering a banchan tasting platter, you know, with like 20 different like little bites of everything and, and taking a tour basically through through the, the Korean, you know, food lexicon. Oh, that is my one of my favorite ways to eat Korean food for sure. Is it? Oh, good. Well, I when when I get to Ann Arbor and I come to Miss Kim, I, I, I want you to take me through one of those tours. I can't wait. And and, and uh, before we, we run out of time, let me just ask you this. You created Miss Kim as an extension of your work originally with Zingerman's. Is Zingerman's a partner with you in this? And do they, how did you and Zingerman's, you know, uh, uh, how did this come into being in, yeah, in yeah. that relationship? Miss Kim is part of Zingerman's community of businesses and they are my partner, business partners. So I am considered a managing partner. So I uh-huh. run day-to-day operation. I have a say in everything. And then I have investing partners in Paul and Ari who founded Zingerman's and they are my sounding board, my advisors there. Uh, we make big, important decisions together. We operate under the same set of uh, mission guiding principles. And, um, and we have like big goals together, but, you know, they will be the first ones to admit that they don't know that much about Korean yeah. food other than really enjoying it. So, they're like, you're managing, you're, they're the, the, uh, they're like the Danny Meyer of, of, of Miss Kim and you are the chef partner. Yes. Yes. Are you located yes. right there in the same location as Zingerman's or do you have your own separate location away from oh, another um, house? The the Zingerman's businesses are all over Ann Arbor and and Ann Arbor vicinity, like Dexter area, and we're all sort of like our own little spots. But I did I my place happened to be just two blocks away from the delicatessen. So if you ever come over, I'm gonna feed you Reuben with <laughs> the most amazing rye bread, and I want to oh. make sure the the Russian dressings like you know, dripping over your arm and it's yeah. your stuff. And then once you digest that, we're going to yeah. go to uh, my restaurant and have some Korean food. <laughs> I would not go to Zingerman's without getting a Reuben. That's for sure. <laughs> oh gosh. Well, uh, Jihei, this has been really, you know, ex- fun and exciting for me. And uh, thank you so much for, for sharing, you know, your story, your knowledge. Uh, congratulations on your success. Uh, I know that you're, you're, um, you know, reputation, the reputation of Miss Kim is extending now beyond Ann Arbor, or maybe people are coming to Ann Arbor, uh, just mainly to experience your food, which is, you know, quite a tribute to the work you've done. And uh, what I, one of the things that I love also is how organically it all came into being. It wasn't from some master plan. It just, it, it, it evolved over time uh, through your experience and, and essentially connecting the dots of your own personal journey to create, to manifest a, a, you know, something that's uniquely uh, both uh, both a traditional Korean restaurant and also a uniquely Jihei, uh, uh, you know, Kim restaurant. <laughs> that's a, that's a one of a kind. So, congratulations I, on all of that. Oh, and I did say I, I was going to ask you: any plans to write a book of your own? I would love 
I would love to have a, a either cookbook or something like book on Korean food. Yeah. yeah. I think that would be just a dream. Yeah. Well, let me know when you're ready. I'd be happy to help you uh, get it off the ground and connect you with whoever you need to, to, to make it happen. Although I, I think with uh, all the people, you know, there, especially the Zingerman's team, you know, they're, they're about as connected as you can get. But if, if I could be of any help to get, to get your voice out there, uh, we'd love to have you be a part of it. And thank you for sharing your quest you know, with all of our Pizza Quest tribe uh, and 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 now extended the parameters of what our quest focus is at Pizza Quest. So uh, again, thank thanks for Thank you part. so much for uh, your kind words. I had so much fun. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. We'll look forward maybe to getting you back again. Uh, I'm just going to, I've got to look for, uh, you know, I'll be talking to, to Jeff and Brad, our my partners at Pizza Quest, and see how can we get back on the road again and, and include Ann Arbor in the in this swing. So because it's been a long yes, time. Yes, please come. Please come. I love it. Love it. Well, have a wonderful rest of the day. Thank you for, for all of this. And thank all of you for joining us on Pizza Quest today. And we'll see you at the next episode. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you. This show is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.